Tonight's Bible reading is from Acts chapter 7, and we're starting at verse 51. You stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was given through angels, but have not obeyed it. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said. I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. Welcome to church tonight. My name's Stuart. I'm one of the pastors here at Sorrel Revival. It's lovely to see you here. Uh, See you online as well. Welcome to everyone at Westride and online. Uh, We're going to continue our journey through Acts tonight. And we're just going to look at chapter 7. And we pick up the story at the first Christian who loses his life for his faith in Jesus Christ, Stephen. And I suppose the big question for me tonight is, why would someone go to such lengths to be a Christian even when their life is threatened? I mean, here we have a story of a man who's dragged before the Sanhedrin and they're going to judge him for blasphemy. And yet he's so fearless and he's so confident in front of these people who are threatening to take his life, as they end up doing. So the question is, how how does someone like Stephen have so much confidence and so much peace in this moment? Because you'll notice in the story that we heard read tonight that there was a great deal of peace that uh, Stephen has. You don't see any anger. In fact, what you see is a contrast. You see that the way Stephen is responding is in contrast to the people who are trying to kill him. And we're going to look at four contrasts in the passage tonight to look at that question of how does Stephen have so much peace? Well, before we dive into the passage tonight, um, I wanted to say that being martyred for Christ is something that has afflicted every generation, that around the world today, there are still people who are losing their lives for their faith. And just like Stephen have decided that following Jesus is more important than their very life. Now, um, there's a great website that I follow quite regularly called Voice of the Martyrs. And there's an Instagram account called Voice of the Martyrs Australia. And I don't usually do this in church, but actually, if you've got an iPhone, I'd love you just to jump online, either go to something like a, a, a website or, or your Facebook or Instagram, and just type in Voice of the Martyrs in case you forget the name later, because you might be really blessed if you can read some of these stories of people who are putting themselves on the line for their faith. Um, either that, maybe write it down, I'll just remember it. But Voice of the Martyrs uh, Australia is really helpful because it tells stories of Christian brothers and sisters today who need our prayer, 
who need us to stand with them. And if you feel so inclined, there's also ways on Voice of the Martyrs to actually be able to give uh, financial donations to Voice of the Martyrs that actually help uh, Christians in very difficult places. Well, for tonight's uh, sermon, I actually visited the website, uh, the Instagram page actually, and it tells a story uh, there of a man that actually hasn't lost his life, but is under great duress for being a Christian. He lives in Mexico and he's a local pastor who has been driven from his village. And I just want to briefly tell you this story. After constant threats, Pastor Philadelpho Santos Perez has been driven from his village because of his witness for Christ. The pastor was a drug trafficker before becoming a Christian. Since converting to Christ, he has been persecuted by his community. He was charged with heavy fines and even arrested for failing to participate in pagan festivals. And on one occasion, he was denied food and water for three days. Because of this persecution by his own village, the pastor now rents a small room in another town. Despite the risks involved in proclaiming his faith, he feels called to continue to share the gospel in his home village. Southern Mexico has a high concentration of indigenous minority groups that maintain separate identities and speak indigenous languages. Christians in these areas, representing about 3% of the population in this part of Mexico, are often forced from their homes and villages. This means they lose their jobs, inheritance and land. Those who can remain in their communities are marginalised. The question for me tonight is, how does someone like Pastor Philadelpho have the courage to continue in this direction in his life? when he could easily walk away and go somewhere else where he'd be accepted. Well, we're shown in the scriptures tonight another man, another Christian man who had this kind of clarity of conviction. As I said, he was a faithful man and he dies at the hands of a hateful mob. Yet the contrast between Stephen and the mob couldn't be more stark. In fact, it actually is a contrast between heaven and hell. Let's set the scene a little bit about Stephen. You may or may know, not know about this man, St Stephen, but basically to understand how he comes into the story, we need to understand that there's been huge growth in the church and so there's been more leadership needed to be involved in leading the new church that's burgeoning in Jerusalem. See, Jesus um, died during the Passover and rose three days later and then he taught his disciples for, for about 40 days. I want to say that's probably the best Bible study in history. I would have thought it would be great to travel around with Jesus before he died, but can you imagine actually being with him after he rose from the dead and then being able to ask any question you wanted in Bible study? How good would that have been? Well, Jesus had uh, teaching for 40 days, and then on the 43rd day, he rose into heaven and he went back into the clouds. One week later, Pentecost came, and during that week, 120 disciples waited in Jerusalem at Jesus' command. And you can pick that story up in Acts chapter 1, verse 4. Now, after his resurrection, Jesus had appeared to over 500 people and taught 120 disciples for well over a month. But still no growth in the church had happened by that time. It's interesting, isn't it? He appeared to 500 people, but still the church was about the same size. But then the Holy Spirit comes 50 days after Jesus rises from the dead and that's when the church begins to grow. It's fascinating, isn't it? Remember Jesus promised the disciples that he would send the counsellor and to wait in Jerusalem until he came? Well, when he came, that's when the, uh, the 
the, the church grew. And in Acts 4.4, we read that the church grew to about 5,000 people after Peter's first sermon describing what the Holy Spirit was doing amongst them. Now, the fast growth of the church didn't come without its problems. There were internal problems and there were external problems, and you can read about that in Acts chapter 4. The internal problem was that they, there was no social security at the time, and so the church was looking after all the widows, and it was becoming pretty obvious that the Hebrew widows were getting more of the allocation than the Gentile widows who'd become Christians, and so there was a little bit of a dispute saying, hey, we need to make this fairer. And the apostles were saying, even though we've replaced Judas with Matthias, we still don't have enough resources to actually run this church properly. So they appointed seven men who they considered had the Holy Spirit and were good representatives and had a good character. And Stephen is mentioned first on the list of the people who are given that title of uh, leader. Now, Stephen is a bit different to the other leaders of the church because he's what's known as a Grecian Jew. Now, a Grecian Jew is a Jewish person who isn't from Jerusalem. So he's become a Jew from uh, another place. And in the synagogues in Jerusalem, there were actually special synagogues set up for uh, people who were Grecian Jews so that they could come and hear the, the Bible taught in their own language. And that's not unfamiliar to us in Sydney. Uh, it's very quite common to have churches, uh, Chinese churches, and to have Tibetan churches, and to have... Um, uh, um, all sorts of different churches in language so that when people come to church they can hear the Bible taught in their own language. Well this is what um, Stephen was, he was one of the preachers that preached in the synagogue um, with the foreign Jews because he had that language but the problem was that as he preached in the synagogues he was preaching about Jesus and so he came under accusations of blasphemy by the Sanhedrin. Now, the Sanhedrin are the council of the religious leaders in the city, are the same people who just prior have tried and executed Jesus. So the very same court that tried and executed Jesus is now going to try Stephen for blasphemy. And they were the charges they put up against Jesus as well. Well, what they do specifically is they talk about the fact that he's contravened Moses, he's contravened the Lord of Sorry, he's contravened Moses and the law and the temple. And so basically they're saying that he has actually destroyed the faith of the Jews through his blasphemy in teaching Jesus. Um, the law, the temple, God and Moses are the big four of Judaism. And they're claiming that he's contravened all of those things. So he's taken to the council, but instead of uh, seeking to defend himself anxiously and maybe even frantically because the, the, the consequence of blasphemy is death, Rather than being frantic, he actually turns the court proceedings around and the accused becomes the accuser. So instead of trying to defend himself, he actually accuses the Sanhedrin of killing Jesus the Messiah. And he accuses the Sanhedrin of blasphemy against God, Moses, the law and the temple. And in fact, at one point he says, how many temples have you had? Three. Why are you on your third temple? Because you keep disobeying God and he has to keep ripping it down to teach you a lesson and every time you rebuild it again, you carry on just like you used to. You, you've killed all of the prophets that God has sent along. One of them, Zechariah, you killed in the temple. You killed Zechariah in the temple between the Holy of Holies and the altar and you are calling me a blasphemer? After all the messengers that God has sent you to tell you about the Messiah, you, don't only, you didn't only kill them, you also killed the Messiah himself. So he turns the tables on them. And, you, and if you want to read that story, you can pick it up in verse 51. You can see how 
the climax of his sermon, he calls them a stiff-necked, uncircumcised people. Stiff-necked and uncircumcised people who are hard of hearing. And this is a really crucial indictment on them. Because the point of being a religious leader is that they need to be warm-hearted towards God. So to be stiff-necked is to be um, arrogantly not willing to be flexible when God actually asks them to change. Uh, Uncircumcised, well, that is a pretty full-on criticism of Jewish people because circumcision is 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 the symbol that God gave to Abraham that a Jewish boy is, is a Jew. And so to say to these Sanhedrin, these men, these old men sitting in their big robes, sitting there, who've all been physically circumcised, that you actually have uncircumcised is an incredible insult. You'll notice that as you read the passage, there's a pretty strong temperature in the room. There's a lot of anger coming out at what Stephen is saying. He's basically saying to them when he's saying that they're stiff-necked and uncircumcised and hard of hearing is they're not listening to God and they don't bow down to God. Their religion is superficial and external. They resist the Holy Spirit just as much as their fathers have and they've killed the holy prophets, including the Messiah Jesus. And that was right up until the last prophet, John the Baptist. You might not think of him as a prophet, an Old Testament prophet, but John is actually the last Old Testament prophet. Because he's the last prophet who comes pointing to Jesus and Herod had him killed as well. And isn't that violent? To not just ignore the prophets, but to kill them. This is what the practice of these religious leaders has been. So at the end of the sermon, Stephen, while he has given them these strong accusations, is calm. And the contrast between Stephen and the Sanhedrin is that his calmness is contrasted with their fury. He stands there in control while they tear their clothes to shreds as he talks to them at the council. Now that's strange, isn't it? If you go to a court, you usually see dignity coming from the judge. The judge sits with their robes and they sit in dignity and they speak calmly and with authority. It's usually the accused that is nervous and anxious because their life is in danger. But here the tables have been turned. And again, I want to ask us the question, why is that? Why is it that this man, this Christian man, is so calm and is able to turn the tables on these religious leaders? Well, what it boils down to is what we see here is that we see that there's this contrast between those who are hostile to Christ and those who are comforted by Christ. Those who are hostile to Christ and those who are comforted by Christ. See, if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ... You will be comforted. Come to me, Jesus said, didn't he? All you who are heavy burdened and I will give you rest. Now the rest Jesus talks about there is not just knowledgeable rest. It's not like I have the knowledge of eternal life so I have a rest that comes from knowing that even though I die I'll go to be with Jesus in heaven. No, it's more than that. It's a spiritual rest. Because what we see here is that Stephen, unlike the Sanhedrin, is filled with the Holy Spirit. And this is the answer to our question. The reason that a pastor in Mexico in 2022 or Stephen, who was in Jerusalem in 33 AD, can have peace in the face of conflict is because the Holy Spirit gives them something that they can't generate from themselves. And the Holy Spirit actually helps them to act differently to how they would normally act if they didn't have the Holy Spirit. Let's have a look at that. 
Turn up to uh, verse 54 and you'll see how this story goes on. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. So what we want to look at the contrast here is Stephen's peacefulness and the Sanhedrin's anger. And I want to actually focus for a moment on the way they express their anger. It's actually quite an unusual phrase. It says that they heard what he was saying, they were furious, and they gnashed their teeth. Now, do you know what gnashing of teeth is? Who can tell me what that is? What is it when someone gnashes their teeth in anger? Yeah, grind. It's like the judges, who are meant to have this dignity sitting here in judgment on this man, are all in front of Stephen, going, like, like dogs who are angry. They're grinding their teeth and they're showing their teeth. Isn't that visceral? Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Their pride was being eroded in front of their very court and they're not confronted with what they think God is saying to them. They're actually confronted with what Stephen's saying, but it actually is God who's speaking to them. And so in a very real way, their rage is not just directed at Stephen. Who is it directed at? It's actually directed at Jesus. This is the same group that gnashed their teeth at Jesus when they said, who are you? And he said, I am. Now, that might not sound profound to us, but I am is a Jewish phrase meaning God. So when they said, are you the Messiah? And Jesus said, I am. He's saying, I am God. And what was their response in their fury? It was to gnash their teeth. Now, the dangerous part about that for them is because they gnashed their teeth at anger towards Stephen and really towards Jesus, because they knew Stephen was a follower of Jesus, the gnashing of teeth was a sign that they had one foot in hell. What is really scary about this is that in Jesus' teachings, not just once but many times, he mentions gnashing of teeth. I don't know if you're familiar with that. And in the scriptures, if something is said once, it's worth paying attention to. But if something is repeated over and over and over, it is really worth listening to. Now, we don't have time to go through all the passages I've looked up during the week about gnashing of teeth, but I've got two for you that are quite confronting. All the passages that I looked up during the week about gnashing of teeth is what people do who are in hell. Let me show you what I mean. Luke chapter 13, verse 28. There will be weeping there. This is Jesus talking of those who are cast into hell. There will be weeping there and gnashing of teeth. Isn't that interesting? When you see Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves are thrown out? Now, for many years, I thought the gnashing of teeth was referring to sadness, disappointment, anxiety, fear. But actually, time and time again in the scriptures, when people are described as gnashing their teeth, as we have seen in Luke chapter 7, it's a sign of anger. So the really interesting thing is that hell is full of angry people. People aren't looking up at Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and realise they've been thrown out and repent and are sad and say, oh, I've blown it as if, if I'd only have just accepted Jesus. The interesting teaching in the Bible in the New Testament is no one in hell repents. No one in hell is like saying, please forgive me. What have I done? I've, I missed it. I didn't realise Jesus was the Son of God. I should have actually followed him. No one's doing that in hell, according to the teaching of Jesus anyway. They gnash their teeth. And that means they're angry at God. So the response of people in hell is anger. Matthew 8, 12 is another example of it. We'll have that up on the screen. 
But the subject, the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So there's that gnashing of teeth there, the anger, the weeping. Obviously there is mourning, but there's anger, anger in hell. Now interestingly, what does it mean there? Like the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside. How could subjects of the kingdom of heaven be thrown outside into hell? Well, it's actually talking about the kingdom, the people of Israel. The people of Israel who've rejected the Messiah will be thrown out of the kingdom. That's what's being spoken about there. So it's actually the people of Israel who are claiming to be in the kingdom, but they actually aren't in the kingdom. And when they're faced with the reality that they've rejected Jesus as the Messiah, their response is fury for eternity. Why is that? Well, in Romans 11, we get a bit of an idea of why that is. Let's have a look at Romans 11. Romans 11, verse 7 to 10. What then, what the people of Israel sought so earnestly, they did not obtain. So there what you see is people who are claiming to be able to follow the law through their own good works. You know, the Pharisees were called called out time and time again by Jesus, weren't they? They were making up all these man-made rules and saying they kept all the law of of Moses. But they didn't obtain what they were looking for. The elect among them did. What that means is there were individuals, there were groups within called the elect amongst Israel who were faithful people of Israel who were saved as well by Jesus. Another sermon, another day. But those who hardened their hearts, what happens in the next verse? As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that could not see and ears, interestingly, that could not hear to this very day. Now, interestingly here, Stephen is saying to these leaders, you can't hear what I'm saying. And there's an interesting thing here is that they've set their hearts against God and they've become stiff-necked. And so God is actually giving them a spirit of stupor because that's the position that they've chosen. It's similar to when Pharaoh hardened his heart and God hardened Pharaoh's heart when the people of Israel were wanting to leave Egypt. Well, here we are back in the Sanhedrin. They're speechless with rage and gnashing their teeth. And I want, to, I want to suggest that they've actually got one foot in hell because of their response. They have an opportunity here to repent and actually be saved by Jesus. But because they are reacting in anger and rage, they are actually going to fulfill an incredibly vicious scheme of theirs. This rage would build and build through Stephen's speech. It wasn't just immediate at the end. They're just getting angrier and angrier and angrier. And in the end, they rush to him, they take him, and they are not satisfied in their rage until he lies dead, bloody and mangled. But interestingly, he is not a victim of this story. He's actually the victor of this story. Let's have a look at verse 55. It says in verse 55, But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And this, my friends, is why a Christian can have confidence and peace in the face of even life-threatening opposition. Because we have the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit actually gets us to look up instead of to look down. To look up instead of to look in. To look up instead of to look backwards to look up instead of to imagine what we can do in our own strength, we can actually understand the context of where we are within God's strength. The Bible um, shows us here that the Holy Spirit is actually making an adjustment to Stephen while he's in the courthouse. He's making an adjustment to his natural response and giving him a supernatural reaction that takes over. It gives him a strength And he gives that strength to all Christians in crisis, not just Stephen. 
Because here we read that Stephen is full of the Holy Spirit. And the Greek word full there is not just talking about at that moment. It's not as though God has poured his spirit out on him during this moment. It's full of the Holy Spirit, meaning that he has been, ever since he's had the Holy Spirit, he's been full of the Holy Spirit. He's full of the Holy Spirit now, and he always will be full of the Holy Spirit. So for us as Christians, we're actually spiritual people all the time. And so rather than being people who want to try and avoid pain, because we know that we as human beings can't hack it, we can actually be confident in the face of pain because we know the Spirit can. It's interesting. Have a look at 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 14 up on the screen. If you are insulated because of the name of Christ, you are blessed for the Spirit of glory and God rests on you. The Holy Spirit insulates you because he rests on you. And he is the Spirit of glory or the Spirit of God. And it's because of Christ that he is in you. So here we see Stephen with what we call dying grace. He's dying here at the hands of these evil men, but he is so at peace, he's not even angry at them, despite their angry at him. Now, the interesting thing for me is that Stephen doesn't pull back from this trial. He walks boldly into the trial, but he doesn't respond to anger with anger. Notice that there in the scripture. It's a really important point. Because if he responds with anger and equals it with his own anger, he would actually be acting in the flesh, not acting in the spirit. But because he is gracious and kind, he absorbs their anger, not because he is able to absorb it, but because the Holy Spirit absorbs it for him. If we fight on our own behalf, how can the Holy Spirit fight for us? So if a Christian full of the Holy Spirit fights back, it's not that the Spirit's failed or we've even failed. It's just that we've forgotten that the Holy Spirit is fighting for us and giving us the ability to be safe within the most dangerous tempest and our response if we act spiritually is to be gracious and you see it time and time again in fact the only time in scripture that a prophet didn't act graciously in the face of death was Zechariah who I mentioned earlier and you can read his story in two chronicles in two chronicles I won't bring it up on the screen but in, in two chronicles he actually is being murdered and he calls out to God in the temple God revenge me Destroy these people who are destroying me. But in the whole of the Old Testament, all the prophets who are killed, including John the Baptist and Jesus himself, we hear the words that Jesus spoke. Forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. God, I want to act in grace to these people. And it seems weak to our ears, human ears, but it's strong to our spiritual ears. So... The thing about these people who are um, attacking him is that they have blindness and they look at him, they look down on him while he is looking up. Have a look at verse 55 again. Let's go back to chapter 7, verse 55. What Stephen saw when he looked up was Jesus. Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up and saw the glory of God and Jesus. Now, two quick things. Why did he look up? What do you think? What was he looking for? He's in a courthouse. Why would you look at the roof? What are you expecting to see? The action's not up there, it's here. But actually the action is there because Jesus said when he left about a month ago, he said, I will come back in the clouds, you'll see me. And he went up in the clouds and Stephen saw him go up in the clouds. So he's actually looking for Jesus when he looks up, literally looking for Jesus. And we see here that God actually opens the, the, the veil of heaven and he sees heaven 
and God gives him this gift. And that doesn't happen very many times, does it? You know, uh, Paul saw heaven. Uh, here Stephen sees heaven. John, the, John, um, the apostle, sees heaven when he's got the, the, uh, the glimpse of heaven in Revelation. So it's not very often that people get to see it. But here Stephen sees heaven. And what does he see? He sees the glory of God, uh, basically the light of God, because when you see God in heaven, you see light. He's, he's seen as light. And before, next to him is Jesus. And the point that I want to make about this verse that's really interesting is that he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God. See that there? Jesus is standing at the right hand of God. Now, that's important because in Hebrews 3, we're told that when Jesus ascended into heaven, he sat at the right hand of the Father. Now, we say that in our creeds. We believe in God the Father, you know, like sitting at the right hand of the Father. Jesus sitting means that he's done his work. You know, when he was on the cross and Jesus said, it is finished, and then he goes to sit down. You sit down when you're finished, but you only stand up when there's work to do. Now, the interesting thing about this verse is this is the first time anybody has seen Jesus do what he claimed he was going to do. Because in John 14, he said, I'm going to my father's house. And now Stephen is the first one to see the result of that. Jesus sitting in his father's house. No, he's not. He's standing. So what's this thing of standing and sitting? Well, yes, Jesus does sit down. But I think the sense here is this. Jesus is sitting down on the throne because he has done his work on the cross but when one of his little ones is threatened, he stands up. That's what I think you see here in the scriptures. So when you're going through a trial and you think you need to defend yourself, true, you do need to. Like, I'm not saying we're doormats. We don't just let people walk all over us. That's another thing we need to say tonight. And if you're having anyone hurting you, please come and get help. But to respond to that person in kind is not actually the best solution here. Because Jesus stands up in the throne room of God when you get threatened. Isn't that an incredible thought? I reckon he's standing up most of the time, actually. But it's a wonderful image there that we see that, we've, that Luke has added there for us. Now, the contrast goes on. Um, in, in, uh, we see there in verse 55, this is what Stephen sees. And this is what he says in verse 56. Let's have a look. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Now, this is pretty gutsy. He's already been called blasphemous. And now he says, look, I see the Son of Man standing before God. Now, why is that important? It's important because Jesus himself said to that Sanhedrin a few weeks earlier, I am the Son of Man and I am going to be at the right hand of God. And now Stephen is saying, I'm seeing that he has fulfilled what he said he's going to do. This is why they're gnashing their teeth. They're in a rage. So the, the story goes on, but what happens is that they, in verse 57, they stop their ears and they scream. It's crazy. If you look at verse 57, they stop, they cover their ears and they yell at the top of their voices so they can't hear what he's saying. That's why he was saying, you guys have plugged your ears up, you're stiff-necked people, you're not listening. Their anger has made them respond by not actually wanting to hear, and if they had have unstopped their ears, they might have been able to repent. But what they do is they now want to do the same thing to Stephen that they did to Jesus. Angry people kill people. That's what happens. That's why the scriptures warn us, in your anger, do not sin. There's many warnings in scripture to us to say there's a good thing to be righteously angry, I'm telling you now. But that quickly can turn into bitterness if you're not careful. And the Bible says don't let the sun go down on your anger because you're not God and you can't actually cope with that. Let him fight your battles for you. They don't, they rush to kill him. 
It's not like they walk to kill him. They, you know, get him, come on, Stephen, let's go outside and we'll stone you to death. They, they've stopped gnashing their teeth and now they go and they kill him. They're like a beast. Now, the, 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 the next contrast here, though, that we see is a contrast between death and life. If the, if the first two contrasts are between uh, seeing how Stephen is calm and that he's acting spiritual and they're not acting spiritual, that they're angry while he's calm, the third contrast is between death and life. And I want to really just end with this here and I'll briefly mention the last one in a minute. But this one's important. Verse 58 they actually take him out and stone him. Now, I don't want to drag you through the whole detail, but I've just researched this a little bit. There's a bit of stuff in Scripture that actually details how someone is supposed to be killed by stoning in the Levitical law. Uh, Leviticus 24.14 says it has to be done outside the city. Uh, Leviticus 24.16 says that the consequence of blasphemy is stoning, that there has to be two or three witnesses, which they actually get. And the interesting you know, thing here is that um, Deuteronomy 17 verse 7 says that the first witness actually has to start the execution and the idea is that witnesses aren't going to go around willy-nilly accusing people of something like blasphemy if they're not prepared to be a part of the execution themselves it's meant to slow down the whole thing you see nothing slows these people down apparently though what used to happen is that in the Mishnah which is a Jewish writings that fills this out even more the law was that they had to throw a person from twice the height of their height into a pit with rocks at the bottom and the first witness was the one who had to throw them into the pit now if they weren't dead after that they had to get a rock and they had to drop it on the victim that was the second witness's job and then there was a pylon if they still weren't dead and here in the story we see the fury of the people as the pylon takes place it looks like the living are killing the dead but what I want to argue today is the contrast is the people killing Stephen are the ones that have one foot in hell and as they're killing Stephen, he actually has one foot in heaven. He's already looked up into heaven during the trial and seen God seated at the right hand of the Father. And he knows these two things. Let's be clear. As soon as he dies, there is no separation from God. There is no soul sleep where he has to sleep for a while. There is no purgatory where he has to do good acts to get into heaven somehow. Stephen knows that as soon as he dies, he will go straight to be with the Lord because he says in verse 59 receive my spirit it's like the thief on the cross who's next to jesus the thief on the cross says remember me jesus and he says today you will be with me in paradise this is backed up by a couple of things paul wrote let's have a look at 2 corinthians 58 he says there we are confident i say and would prefer to be away from the body and be at home with the lord now what he's talking about there is he's going through great suffering and he longs to be with God. But what he says there that's interesting for our point today is that as soon as you're away from the body, that means you die, your real self is at home with the Lord instantly. There's no other option. You're either in the body or with the Lord if you're a Christian. Isn't that beautiful? Philippians 1.23, this is pretty cool. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with you, oh, sorry, be with Christ, which is far better. So what he says there is, I'm torn because I want to be here with you in the body with everyone here, but I also depart to be with Christ, which is far better. The idea there is depart means death and death means to be with Christ. It's pretty exciting actually. When he says, Lord, receive my spirit, let's have a look at it in verse 59, throw that up. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord, receive my spirit. He knows that he's going to close his eye after the last blow and he's going to open his eyes again, he's going to see Jesus the one he's just seen 15, 20 minutes earlier when he got that vision of heaven. He 
He knows where he's going. And that's why Christians are so calm under pressure. Because the Holy Spirit gives that kind of insight. Death is not the end for the Christian. The last contrast is between the hate of the crowd and the love of the Christian. As Stephen is killed in verse 59, go on to the next part, verse 60, then he fell on his knees. Somehow he's able, with all these rocks hitting him, he's able to assume a prayer position. Isn't that lovely? Goes on his knees. That's what the knees there. He fell on his knees deliberately. The Greek is saying he didn't fall like from the blows. He goes onto his knees because he's going to ask God one last thing while he's on this earth. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. How about next time we are assailed by someone, we defend ourselves, like obviously we don't let anybody hurt us, but what if we pray for them first before we say anything? What if we exert grace to that other person at work who's driving us crazy and trying to undermine us behind our backs? What if we show grace to someone who doesn't appreciate how hard we've worked at the soccer club and all they do is you know, get upset with all our decisions about which team should be which? Or what about if you're at school and there's a bully? Maybe pray for the person, say, God, I pray that person would stop this, then go tell a teacher. And remember that as soon as you pray that prayer, you are kneeling before a standing Jesus. Have you ever thought of that before? When you come to God with your most heartfelt needs, Jesus stands. Isn't that beautiful? He's in an active position. He's basically saying, I will respond actively. I will not let you down. They hated him and he loved them. That's the contrast. So the grace of, Je- of Stephen is the grace of Jesus. These words sound sim- similar, don't they? When Jesus was on the cross, he said, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. And the first converts to Christianity were on the day by the people who executed him. Jesus even saves his enemies. So when he said in Matthew 5, love your enemy, he meant it. And the reason we can love our enemies is because that's a supernatural ability. I love Marvel movies. But Christians don't need to dream about having a superpower. We can live with a superpower. Every day. And when you have a particular need, like Stephen did that day, if you boldly step out and trust in him, he will not let you down. And if you need even more of the Holy Spirit for a certain difficult situation you're in, ask for more power. More superpower. (laughs) So that your panic can turn to calm. As you know, you are safe in eternity. Only a Christian with the Holy Spirit can love like that. Amen.